Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 2 uh, today and continuing our look at the events of that first Pentecost. And as we were looking through Acts chapter 2 and discussing Pentecost, we said that some remarkable things happened on that day. Uh, the Holy Spirit showed up with great power and authority. Tongues of fire rested upon the apostles. A mighty rushing wind filled the place where they were sitting. And we're told that they spoke in many tongues. And all of those things were amazing and extraordinary. And they all had symbolic significance. And we took a look at those. But really the most amazing thing that took place on the day of Pentecost. Aside from all of these other things that I've just mentioned. The most extraordinary and in really many respects the most significant thing that happened on that first Pentecost was that the disciples stood up and for the first time really became witnesses. And remember, that's what this is all about. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus had made a promise to his disciples, and the promise was that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and they would be his witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So even though we may focus on the, the power of the Holy Spirit and the symbols by which the Holy Spirit made his presence known, and even though we may be enamored with this gift of tongues, really the greatest miracle of all, and the one that the book of Acts would have us focus on, is the fact that these men became witnesses for the first time. And nothing has ever been the same since. We are here today because they were witnesses. If they had not been witnesses, this would have been a very interesting Jewish religion. It became a global religion as a consequence of what happened there and the consequence of them becoming witnesses. So one of the things that I want to keep putting before you, and it's very important to remember, is that the book of Acts is not merely a record of what has happened in the past. The book of Acts is a blueprint for ministry today. So if the book of Acts is really about their witnessing, we want to learn from how they did that. Because you and I are called to be witnesses today. The faith is called to be carried on to the next generation. And the same Holy Spirit who empowered them is here to empower us today. And that's why this morning or this afternoon, now that we've just passed the noon hour, uh, we're going to take a look at that first great witnessing that the apostles did on Pentecost. This first great sermon that was preached by Peter, uh, beginning at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Uh, it's a rather lengthy sermon, so I'm going to go ahead and read through the whole thing, just sort of follow along in your text, and then we're going to go back and take a look at what I think really is a truly remarkable sermon and an example for us of how we are called to witness today. So Acts chapter 2 verses 14 and following. 
But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. (laughs) I don't know if the Lord's calling in or dialing up or what's going on, but... (laughs) That's all right. Peter stood up and said, for these people are not drunk. Therefore, you must silence your cell phones. <laughs> Verse 15. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also shall dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that the God, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Uh, I said to you the last time we met, this has got to be one of the most extraordinary sermons ever preached. Uh, We're getting the Reader's Digest condensed version here, obviously. Um, Because Luke is very clear, with many other words, he exhorted them. So all we're getting here are the highlights. But the highlights are significant, and they are helpful to us. But you'll notice that 3,000 people were added. So this was an amazing sermon. Uh, At this point, the book of Acts begins with 120 followers. I mean, those crowds that had followed Jesus in Galilee that numbered 5,000 men. And who who knows how many children and women in addition to those 5,000. But huge throngs of people have been following Jesus. But then all of a sudden, by the time you get to the crucifixion, the numbers have dwindled down to only about 120. Now, why is that? Well, because initially they were very impressed with Jesus' miracles. Oh, they loved the fact that he could take five loaves of bread and two small fish and become an automatic SNS cafeteria. They loved that. They thought that was fantastic, especially in an agrarian culture. They were enamored with the fact that this Jesus could open the eyes of the blind, cleanse lepers. They loved the fact that he could raise people from the dead. They loved that, but they didn't like what he had to say. And John's gospel on one occasion, after he had fed the 5,000, Jesus said, you people are following me because you ate your fill of the bread. He said, but do not strive for that bread that leaves you hungry again. I am the true bread which came down from heaven. Whoever feeds on me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. That's the kind of sustenance that you ought to be seeking. And you know what the text says? And many of his disciples... That is to say, his followers began to grumble, saying, this is a hard word. Who can accept it? And the Greek word is interesting. It's the Greek word skleros. It doesn't, from where we get scleroderma, hardening of the skin. This is a hard saying. But it wasn't hard to understand. It was hard to accept. They didn't like what Jesus had to say. That he had something that they needed, and they couldn't get it anywhere else. And so we're told, they said, grumbled. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And the text goes on to say, and many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. So by the time you get, after, after that first Palm Sunday, by the time you get to the crucifixion, those huge crowds have dwindled down to 120 people. 120 stalwarts. And that's even after the resurrection. Only 120 people. And all of a sudden, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches one sermon, and all of a sudden the numbers go from 120 to 3,120. Now that's a heck of a sermon. What was it about this sermon that made that difference in their lives? Well, obviously, it was the Holy Spirit. We all recognize the fact that Peter couldn't have done this in and of himself. The only time Peter ever said anything, as I said to you before, was so he could insert his other foot. He was always making mistakes, saying things that he didn't know what he was saying. So we all recognize it couldn't have been Peter by himself. It was obviously the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit works through people. He works through agents. He works through individuals. If the Holy Spirit wanted, he could have just convicted their hearts without speaking a word. 
But that's not how God works. God works through individuals. And he worked through Peter and through the words that Peter spoke. And it changed the world. Now I'm telling you all of that because I want you to understand you are called to be a witness. You are called to bear testimony to Jesus Christ. You are not expected to do that in and of your own power or strength. You're to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you are expected to do it. Jesus' final words to his disciples were what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, you're a disciple of Jesus, aren't you? You're not one of the original twelve, but you are a disciple. You are a follower of Jesus. And if that's the case, then you have a responsibility to share the gospel. Now, most of us would like to say, well, I want to do it the way St. Francis did it. You know, St. Francis sent out his followers and he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Well, I think St. Francis was a wonderful person, but he was wrong about that. Because Paul is very clear. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they hear unless somebody preaches to them? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So we need to realize God works through individuals. It's through our witness, through our verbal testimony. The scripture is very clear about this. Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. But whoever confesses me, and that is a public confession, and it is a verbal confession, I will honor him before my Father in heaven. So we need to recognize that sharing the faith is important. Now you might be thinking to yourself, I don't feel equipped to do that. I'm not sure I could do that effectively. How many of you are a little anxious about the prospect of having to share your faith verbally? And you don't feel equipped. That's the reason we're going to take a look at this sermon today. Because there are certain hallmarks of this sermon, this first sermon that Peter preached on Pentecost, that should be the hallmarks of every Christian witness. That's not to say you're going to do it exactly the way Peter did it. But there are certain things about this sermon that should be the hallmarks of all Christian witness. And that's why I say the book of Acts is a book that is a blueprint for ministry today. It's not just a record of what they did. It's a model for how we should do things today. And this is indeed a model (coughs) for evangelism today. First thing that I want you to notice about this remarkable sermon that Peter preached that brought 3,000 people into the fold of the Christian church is that it was a biblically-based sermon. Uh, Today, uh, I'm a great fan of three-point sermons. I I love to do three-point sermons. I think there's so much in the text. Now, if you've heard me preach and you've heard me teach, you realize that I could probably bring out about 30 points from a text. But I think people can probably handle about three points on an average Sunday. But what it does is it shows us that the text is rich. It's multifaceted. There's a great deal there. It's like mining for gems. So I I like three-point sermons. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to preach back in the 19th century to thousands in London, including the prime minister himself, who was Jewish and not particularly convinced, but nevertheless enamored by Spurgeon, Spurgeon would always preach four-point sermons. They always referred to one of Spurgeon's great four-pointers. If you go back even further to the time of the Puritans, 
you discovered that they preached sermons that sometimes had 10 and 12 points. And under that, they had several subpoints as well. Now, of course, that was in an age when people were accustomed to listening. We live in a soundbite society. And that, that's the way it is. We live in an age of commercials, and so we are not trained to listen. But people in a former age before the advent of television and radio, they did. They were trained to listen. It was nothing to hear an orator go on for two hours as long as he was good. I mean, read the speeches of some of the great orders, Edward Everett of the 19th century, even the great debates in Congress, Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun. People went on and on and on, and people were keen, they were, they were attuned, and they were keen to listen in and to hear what was said. All right. So be aware of the fact that, that that was part of it. But one of the things we'll notice here is that this is not a three-point sermon or a four-point sermon, but it is a three-text sermon. It's a three-text sermon. Peter brings in the scriptures over and over again. In other words, he is reminding his listeners, a Jewish congregation, that this is not his opinion. There was a great preacher in London. Uh, he's still alive, but he's not active in ministry anymore. His name was Dick Lucas. He was the uh, rector at St. Helen's Bishopsgate, one of the great evangelical parishes in London. And he would begin every sermon in precisely the same way. He'd climb up into the pulpit, and he'd look out over the congregation, and he'd say, I have absolutely nothing of consequence to say to you this morning. Therefore, let us turn to the Word of God. <laughs> See, I have absolutely nothing of consequence. He was telling him, you don't want to come and hear Dick Lucas. You are coming here because you want an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. You don't want to hear me because I don't have anything of consequence, really, life-shattering to say to you. You are coming here because you want to hear God speak. That's what Peter was doing. And this is one of the values of expository preaching. Now, let me just tell you, Episcopalians don't know how to do that. They really don't. Sermons, really, in my opinion, and you're probably already getting a bit of a taste of this, should be teaching sermons. Why should we be concerned with expository preaching rather than taking the text and the preacher then, you know, sort of giving you some sort of spiritual nugget for you to hold on to as opposed to taking the text, explaining what the text is really saying and how that applies to your life. Because otherwise, what you are getting is the opinion of the man in the pulpit, which may or may not be okay. But expository preaching does what? It forces the preacher out of the way and allows the text to speak. So expository preaching, it's not something that Episcopalians are trained to do. Um, the Reformed tradition does it a much better job of it. But it's taking the text apart, not murdering it in order to dissect it. I'm not suggesting that. But it is taking the text and simply saying, this is what it's saying. Not, this is what I think Paul is saying. Listen, I go to a church and somebody says, I think what Paul is really saying is, I don't care. I really don't care what you think Paul is saying. What I want to know is, what is Paul saying? And how does that fit into my life? Peter was good at that. He understood that he needed to get out of the way and show his congregation 
that what had happened in the person of Jesus Christ was God at work. And so he preaches a biblically-based sermon. There are three texts in this. We see them. Uh, the three-text sermon is Joel chapter 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. And you can just look at the references yourself. You see some of it here uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet what? Joel. <coughs> Joel. Uh, it's very important that we focus, you see, on the Bible. Because the Bible is the word of the Lord. I, I think, basically, we are living in a time in which there are three views of the scripture in the life of the church today. The first view is the classic view of what the scriptures are. The classic view is that the Bible is the word of God. God is the author. Now, the scripture has many writers, but one author. So, the classic view is, is borne testimony to every time we have a reading in church on Sunday. We may have a reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And that's how we introduce it. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter beginning at the first verse. But when we get to the end of it, we don't say what? The word of Isaiah. What do we say? Word. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Same thing when we're reading from the epistles. Uh, reading from St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians. But when we get to the end, we don't say the word of Paul. We say what? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what we are saying is that, yes, Paul was the writer, but God the Holy Spirit so carried him along and so superintended the process that what was ultimately produced was not merely the words of Paul. Yes, it still had the marks of his style and punctuation, etc., but what was ultimately produced was the word of the Lord. Now, that was the classic view in the life of the church right up until about the end of the 18th century, the dawn of the 19th century. And then you begin to have forms of higher criticism come in. We begin to uh, apply scientific principles to the study of the text, textual criticism, etc., form criticism, that sort of thing. And many people begin to question. Of course, this was a post-Enlightenment age, uh, the 18th century, and so we begin to question all kinds of things, miracles, etc. And we really begin to take a look at the text in a very critical way, even as Christians. And so many people begin to argue that the Bible really can't be regarded as the word of God anymore. We just don't have confidence in that anymore. And so they begin to argue that what the scriptures really were, were the words of men about God. Now, that's not to say that they didn't have value. They had sociological value. They have historical value. But this is not a divine word. <laughs> Now, Orthodox Christians begin to realize that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem for us. That, that could put the church out of business if you adopt that point of view. And so many people decided that what they were going to try to do is find a mediating view. <clears throat> that what the Bible contains are the words of men and the words of God. But it's sort of mixed together. And we have to determine which is which. And I think this is the view that is still holding sway in many mainline Protestant denominations today. And that's why you'll hear people say, well, yeah, well, that's, that's obviously God speaking in that particular text. Judge not, lest you be judged. <laughs> that's God speaking there, boy. <laughs> but when Paul talks about marriage 
or Paul talks about human sexuality, or Paul talks about, well, that's not God, that's Paul the man talking. And so all of a sudden it becomes a smorgasbord where we pick and choose those parts that we find are the tastiest parts, but we oftentimes leave behind the parts that are the most nutritious. When I was a kid, I hated salads. You hated what? Salads. <laughs> but I love dessert. Well, desserts may taste the best, but they're not necessarily the most nutritious. But that's where many people are in the life of the church today. So the question becomes then, well, how do you determine which is the word of God and which is the word of man? And they say, well, turn it over to the scholars. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? The only problem you discover is that the scholars don't agree either. So really, the only option, in my opinion, that is open to us as Christians is the classical view. God speaks through this word with power and with authority for our lives. There may be many writers, but we have to believe that God so superintended the process. That's what Paul says. He says in Timothy, this is theopanustos, the Greek word is. Theo, God, panustos, panuma, from which we get spirit or breath, God breathed. That the word of the Lord is God breathed. This is God speaking to us. Now Peter obviously believed that. And so what he wanted to do was get himself out of the way. This is not Peter speaking. He was saying this is the word of the Lord. So I think whatever we do, whenever we witness, we always have to bring people back to the Bible. Now I'm going to talk about this in a moment. That does not mean just hitting them over the head with a bunch of scripture verses. I've not found that to be particularly effective. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting to you is that any form of Christian witness has to be biblically based. And if you go to a, to a church and you are not hearing the word of the Lord preached, if he's standing up there in the pulpit and preaching from the New York Times, get out of there. You can read the New York Times on your own. What you are coming there to hear is a word from God. How many of you want an encounter with God when you go to church on Sunday? That's what you want. Make sure wherever you go to church, go to St. Philip's, make sure that we are preaching the word of the Lord and not the mere opinions of men. Uh, somebody sent me a, um, <laughs> a um, uh, just a, something was on a church sign. You know, sometimes you get one of those, you know, what do you prefer in eternity, smoking or non-smoking? You know, those kinds of <laughs> things. <laughs> But this was saying, America, the elephant, and the donkey do not have the answers. It's time to turn back to the lamb. There is a sense in which the preacher doesn't have the answers, folks. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they don't have the answers. But God has. John Wesley said, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. And he said, thanks be to God, he has written it down in a book. He said, give me that book. Make me a man of that book. Which means that if you are going to be able to witness effectively, you've got to be a man or a woman of the book. This is why that great colic in the book of common prayer says, help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest thy holy word. We have got to learn to 
to hide God's word in the hearts of our children and our grandchildren. So that when they are getting a thousand different voices out there in the culture, they can hear that still, small voice which speaks in the midst of the tumult, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How many of you find in life there are just so many voices out there? So much noise, so much static, fills you with fear and anxiety, and you're longing to hear that word of the Lord. You know, sometimes God does speak through the words of the preacher, for which I'm truly grateful. God sometimes speaks through the words of the music. Some of you I know. I'm, there are certain hymns that I start to sing them and I just well up. Singing is a kind of exalted prayer. But while God can speak through other people and through music, He doesn't promise to do that. What He promises to do in the book of Isaiah is to speak through His Word. His Word never comes back empty. So if you're going to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, you need to be men and women of the book. You need to understand the flow of the book. You need to understand that there are many writers, many writers, but there's one author and there's one theme running through from the book of Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation. And what is that theme? The saving acts of Jesus Christ. Did you know that the first preaching of the gospel did not take place when Jesus appeared on the scene following his baptism in the Jordan River? When did the first preaching of the gospel take place? Anybody know? Abraham? No. Somebody said it. It's in Genesis. Keep your finger there in the book of Acts and go back. Close. Close. It's in, Abraham's in the book of Genesis, but we're talking earlier than, Genesis, uh, earlier than Abraham. It is. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 for just a moment. She got it. This is the Proto-Evangelion. The first gospel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. This is after they've eaten of the tree. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. There's so much to say about this text, but one of the first things that you see as a consequence of sin is the blame game. God calls Adam and he says, what have you done? And the first thing Adam does is he doesn't, no pun intended, man up. He says what? He blames somebody else. I'm not responsible for my own actions. I'm not responsible for what I've done. You know, I'm messed up because my parents messed me up. You know, whatever it is. The woman... Now, we laugh about that because we say, ah, that's typical of a man. Blame the woman. But actually, that's not who he's blaming. 
He's blaming God. He's saying the woman you gave me. I'm not responsible. And so the next thing that happens is what? He says to the woman, what have you done? And she said, I didn't do it. The serpent did it. And I always like to say, and God says to the serpent, what have you done? The serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. That's what they said. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations say, He shall crush your head. Now, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. When does that happen? It happens on Calvary, that's right. Where Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, mounts the arms of the cross, and by his atoning death, his sacrifice of himself crushes the power of the serpent and destroys death forever. So the story of Jesus is proclaimed right back here at the beginning. <laughs> That's how we need to understand the Scriptures, not just spouting off biblical verses, but understanding the theme, the flow, the message of the Scriptures. This is the great story, and all of our little stories are just chapters in it. And so that's how we need to understand it. So a model for evangelism is to understand what God is doing in history. This is so important. God is the God of history. Back in the 1940s during World War II, when you went to the movies, you used to see these um, newsreel things, movie tone things, and they also had a whole series that was produced by the Time Life Corporation called The March of Time. And it always began with this stirring music with drums and trumpets, and then you would see all of these scenes from around the world of what was happening. And sometimes they had scenes of military battles, and sometimes they were military setbacks. But the whole tone of those things gave you the impression that time was marching on. It's called the March of Time. And that eventually there was an order, there was, there was a focus on history, and eventually we're going to get there. They, they filled you with a sense of confidence, even in the midst of military setbacks. You got the impression this is a temporary thing. Well, let me tell you, nobody believes that today. You ask most people in the millennial generation, do you believe that time is marching on, that there's any direction or focus to history, and they're going to tell you no. It's all meaningless. Most of them think the same way the Greeks did, that life and history is nothing but a carnival barker's wheel of fortune. Round and round and round she goes, and where she stops, nobody knows. That's what most people think today. And, and maybe you're going to get good, maybe you're going to get bad. So the best thing you can do is what? Either stiff upper lip or eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die. Well, let me tell you, the biblical view of the world was never that. This is not a riderless chariot. God is in control. He is in charge. History is marching. I've always said that history, if you want to picture history, history is like the 1812 overture. Don't you love the 1812 Overture? I don't know why we do that on the 4th of July. It has nothing to do with American history. But at any rate, the 1812 Overture is a remarkable piece of music. 
How does it begin? It begins quietly, plaintively almost. That's how the Bible begins. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light. And what you discover happening in the 1812 Overture is it starts off quiet, but it begins to build, doesn't it? And if you know the story, it's the story, and Tchaikovsky wrote that, it's the story of what? Napoleon's invasion of Russia. He's going to Moscow. He's going to take the imperial capital. And so the piece begins quietly, but it builds, and it builds towards this great climax. And, and if you've ever heard it done live, as I've heard it done live by the Maryland Symphony Orchestra, they actually have the National Guard come out with cannons. And the cannons are firing off, and you can hear church bells sounding, the tocsin, and you can just, you can feel it. You can get the drama of it all. <coughs> and Napoleon is turned back. And you think that's the end of the story. You think that's the end of the piece, because it gets quiet again. But you realize it's only building toward a grand and glorious finale. The climax is in the middle, but there's a finale to come. And all of a sudden, the cannons are being fired again, but not in hostility. They're being fired in salute. And you hear the church bells ringing, but not the alarm, but the healing with victory. <coughs> and then you can hear the Marseillaise, but it's passing away, and you can hear God save the Tsar. And it's just a marvelous piece of music, and everybody's on their feet, and everybody's cheering. Let me tell you, that's what history's all about. That's the story of what God is doing in and through history. It starts off quiet and plaintive, but it builds toward a grand and glorious climax. And what's the climax? And the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. And you say, my goodness, he mounted the arms of the cross. He rose again. He's ascended into heaven. That's the end of the story. That's what you think in the 1812. It's not. We're coming to a grand finale. And that one who was born in great humility will come back again. But not as he did in great humility, but with power and glory. And every eye shall now behold him. How does the hymn say? Robed in dreadful majesty. Those who said it not and sold him pierced and nailed him to the tree. And he shall judge the living and the dead. And all that is wrong, all that is foul, everything that is corrupted shall be set right. And God shall sit upon his throne and all shall be right with the world. That's what history is. And let me tell you, we are living in a culture and in a day when people are desperate for that kind of good news. Are you able to share that message with them? Because that's what Peter was doing. That made him an effective witness, folks. That's what we are called to do as Christian people. So it's a biblically-based sermon. Understand what the theme of the Bible is. doesn't mean you have to know every single verse. It doesn't mean you have to memorize the book of Psalms. I've known many people who are very effective at memorizing the Bible, but they really don't understand the Bible. So understand what it is. Read it, mark it, learn it. And really digest it. Second thing you'll notice about Peter's great sermon on Pentecost is that it was a Christ-centered sermon. This whole sermon is about who? It's about Jesus. It's not just about God in generic, general terms. It is about specifically the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. What is Christianity? 
Christianity is Christ. I'll never forget when I became the rector at a parish in the upper part of the diocese years ago, St. David's Chirol. I went in and I preached for there. I was about there for about three months, and a guy came up to me after the eight o'clock service, and he said to me, "Why are you always talking about Jesus?" <laughs> sort of thought it was self-evident we're Christians, you know. But uh, he said, "You know, in my day we talked about God, but we didn't talk about Jesus." And that's the way it is for many Protestants. They don't want to talk about Jesus because that sounds very personal, doesn't it? That's, that's sort of in my face. I can talk about generic God, theism. That's okay. I don't want to talk about Jesus. This is a Christ-centered sermon. Even the Old Testament texts that he brings in are about Jesus. That's what he says about the prophet Joel. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he goes on to quote it. And then he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Joel was talking about Jesus. Isaiah was talking about Jesus. Back in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the... Talking about Jesus. In our witness, our purpose is to bring people into fellowship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. That is what Christianity is. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. It is a person. And if you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, let me tell you, the whole thing falls apart. Now, you can take the prophet Muhammad out of Islam, and you can still have the religion. You can take Moses out of Judaism and still have the religion. But if you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. And here's why. It wasn't what Jesus said that was so earth-shattering. Love your neighbor as you love yourself? He was not the first one to say it. It's not what Jesus said, it's what he did that made all the difference. And so if you remove Jesus Christ from Christianity, you end up with a picture frame with no image. You end up, John Stott said, a casket without a jewel. So we need to understand that Jesus is Christianity. If you want to meet God, the only way you do that is in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. Keep your finger there in Acts for just a moment and turn to John chapter 1. I know we're all over the place, but I get a little fired up. Uh, it just sort of happens to me. But go to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now it's very interesting, the language that John employs here in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word is logos. Now, what's fascinating here is that John is employing Greek philosophical language to describe Jesus. The word logos was first coined, really, by an early philosopher by the name of Heraclides. And he was the fellow who said that the universe is in a constant state of flux. He was the one that said if you step into a river and step out of it and step back into it, it's not the same river. It is changed. 
And what's interesting is we know that from physics and from chemistry today. The air that you breathe and exhale, it's not the same breath. It is, it is altered chemically. You never breathe the same air twice, ever. So one of his disciples asked him a question. They said, well, if the world is in a constant state of flux, where everything is always changing, nothing remains the same, why is there order in the universe? And his response was, there is a logos. There is a word that orders all things. Now, what John is doing is he is taking that Greek philosophical idea and he's saying what you call that word is actually God. That's what he's saying. God is the one who brings order out of chaos. God is the one who brings order even in the midst of change. In the beginning was that word, and that word was with God, and that word was God. Now, at that point, everybody's tracking with him and saying, okay, I got that. I got it. But then comes this earth-shattering revelation in verse 14, and that word became flesh. <clears throat> the Greek word is sarx, flesh. What's flesh? It's what you got up with this morning. It's what some of you shaved this morning. Flesh. The creator of the heavens and the earth became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have beheld his glory. Some of us slept by his side. Some of us broke bread with him. Some of us walked with him to Jerusalem. We watched him reach out and touch the leper. We watched him open the eyes of the blind. It's not some abstract concept of a God who is distant and aloof and removed from human suffering and pain. He is one who has come down into our suffering, into our mess, and we have seen and held him. That's what Christianity is, folks. It is real, it is tangible. That's what it's all about. And that is what the focus is on. If you're ever going to bring somebody into a relationship with God, you've got to bring them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've got to introduce them to Him. And it is a deeply personal, but it is not a private matter. So many times I hear people say, well, my religion's a very personal matter. True enough. But it isn't private. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all men. So we have got to bring them into relationship with Jesus Christ. When we say bring them into relationship with Jesus Christ, what do we mean by that? Because many people have different ideas about Christ out there. You know, many people say Jesus is a great moral exemplar. You'll notice that in the midst of this sermon, going now back to the book of Acts, one of the things that you'll notice is that he talks about Jesus, but he talks specifically about these things with Jesus. First thing Peter does is he references Jesus' earthly ministry. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, what? Of Nazareth. You know him. You even know where he comes from. Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
So he reminds us that Jesus was a real man. He walked among us. He did real things. It's important to remind people today of that. Richard Dawkins made a huge mistake a few years back in saying there's no historical evidence whatsoever for the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, he got slammed left and right, even by the most liberal of people. Because the historical evidence for the existence of Jesus of Nazareth is overwhelming. And not just in Christian sources, but in secular sources as well. Roman sources, Jewish sources. So we need to remind people that the Christian faith is not pie in the sky. This is not something that we would like to be true. This is not credulity. The Christian faith is an historical faith. And that's exactly, that's exactly what Peter was doing. He was reminding them that Jesus was a real person. We need to remind people in this age that Jesus is a real person. He's an historical figure, and we can show you where that's a fact. Second thing that he immediately goes to is he talks about his ministry. He also talks about his death, his atoning death. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. When does the Bible say that Jesus was crucified? There are two answers to this. Not a, it's a bit of a trick question. <laughs> when was Jesus crucified? Well, sometime around the year 33 AD. I mean, that, that's one answer. I mean, okay. I said it's, it's a kind of a trick question. 33 AD. Sometime in, in, in that time frame, Jesus was crucified under the order of Pontius Pilate. We know that Pontius Pilate was a real person. All right, so we know roughly the time period, 33 AD. But actually, the scriptures describes Jesus as the lamb who was slain when? Before the foundation of the earth. That's why Peter says Jesus' death upon the cross was no messy accident. Well, that, that's what we think. Oh, God sent his son into the world and, you know, he sent him to preach good news to the poor and to the afflicted and the people killed him. Oh, gosh, what is God going to do now? I've got to go plan B. There's no plan B. This was all a part of the plan. And what's so powerful about it is we think plan B is initiated not here in the Gospels, but back in Genesis. God created the people, and he wanted them to be good, and he wanted them to, to you know, be his regents over creation. And they took and they turned that aside, and they messed everything up. So God said, now I've got to do something. What am I going to do? Okay, I'll, uh, let's um, get the Father and the Son together, and we'll talk about this, and, and uh, we'll figure it out. Somebody once said, for God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. <laughs> the scripture says Jesus was sacrificed before the foundation of the earth. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. That means that God knew even before he created mankind what we were going to do. And he could have very easily said oh, let's just not do that. But he didn't. Even before we had sinned, he had set in motion the means by which we would be redeemed from it. Now that's love. That's love of the nth degree. So even before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, whatever it was, 
God had in mind the means by which he would redeem them from the curse. At great personal cost to himself. Revelation 13, 8. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the lamb was sacrificed. Keep your finger there and turn to it. Some of us are auditory learners. Some of us are visual learners. So I think it's important to look at the text itself. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So when was your name written in the book of life? Before the foundation of the earth. Now you're waiting, you're thinking to yourself, now wait a minute. That sounds like Presbyterianism. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like predestination. Guess what? It is. Well, we don't have time to go into that today. That's a, that's a whole nother subject. We'll get to that eventually. If you want to know how Anglicans feel about that historically, read the 39 articles. The longest of the 39 articles in the Book of Common Prayer is about predestination and election. How about that? So, the emphasis is on his ministry. He's a real person. He died a real death. And it was not a messy accident. It was part of the plan to save us from ourselves. He was buried. Verse 24. And God raised him up. You crucified and killed him, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. He was buried, and he was what? Resurrected. He was brought back to life. He ascended. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, we've got his ministry, real person. He died a real death, not a messy accident, all part of the plan to redeem you, to save you from yourself. He was buried, but he was raised again. That was not the end of the story. He is now ascended, and he's at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. And what? He is still at work in the world today. It is this Jesus, whom you crucified, but God raised, who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, who is doing what you are witnessing here, folks, today. That's what Peter was saying. So, all of these are aspects of Christian witness. You've got to be a people who understand the grand story. You've got to understand how the pieces fit together. You've got to understand that it's really about Jesus. It's about bringing people into relationship with him. But if you're going to do that, it can't be their own idea of Jesus. And You know, somebody once said, God made us in his own image, and ever since, we have been trying to return the favor. <laughs> we can't do that it's not your idea of Jesus my own personal Jesus who cares about that I don't like your personal Jesus quite frankly it's who Jesus is 
And in order to do that, you need to talk about his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his present ministry in the world today. And he wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. This isn't about religion. This is about relationship. <coughs> this is called kerygma. Now, true Greek words um, used by a famous English scholar by the name of C.H. Dodd. He said the New Testament contains two types of material. One type of material is didache. That means instruction, teaching. You see a lot of that in the epistles. When Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he's trying to instruct them as to how they should live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Uh, you get, to some degree, didache in the Sermon on the Mount. All right? Kerygma, however, is a Greek word which means proclamation. And in the New Testament, anytime you have a sermon, whether it's preached by Peter or Paul or whoever, it's always kerygma. It's a proclamation of what? What we call in the prayer book the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's kerygma. That's the proclamation. And that's what we're aiming for. When you're doing evangelism, you want to keep that in mind. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. It's the proclamation of what Jesus has done. And you'll see this oftentimes with me in church on Sunday. Um, I love to teach, I love to preach. Teaching, this is where I can take it and really unpack it. But on Sunday, you'll find that most of the time, my sermons are aimed at lifting up Jesus Christ. You know why? Because it's the Lord's day. Isn't that what we say? It's the Lord's Day. Now, one of the hallmarks of my ministry will be a strong teaching ministry. Because teaching equips the saints for the work of ministry. Now, some people want to go to Sunday to get their batteries recharged. And I understand that. But that's not why you go to church. Now, it may be why you go to church, but it's not why you should go to church. Because church is not about us. We're there to do what? Worship. What does the word worship mean? It comes from the old English. It means worship. It means to apply worth or value to someone or to something. Which means it's God's party. We tend to think that we're the audience and those guys up there in the front are the actors and we hope they're doing a pretty good job. But the reason why we're liturgical is because liturgy means the work of the people. God is, the act. God is the audience. We're the actors. We're there for His glory, for His benefit. Now, the other six days of the week, we have these Bible studies and classes so that we're equipped. But Sunday is God's day, the Lord's day. And so we lift up what He has done and what He continues to do in and through the lives of His people. So that's what this is all about, charisma. Here's a third hallmark of Peter's sermon. It was fearless. We mustn't forget that Peter preached this sermon where? In Jerusalem. And what had happened in Jerusalem just a short time before? Jesus had been crucified. <laughs> just a little over a month before. Crucified. There was great risk to do this. 
something had happened in the life of Peter that changed him. Obviously, what had happened is the resurrection. And one of the things that I love about the picture that you get of the apostles and the disciples there in the, book, in the, in the Gospels is that it's an unvarnished picture. These are not coming across as heroes. They're coming across as cowardly. Peter denied the Lord what? Not once, not twice, but three times and once to a little girl. And John hooked it. In the time of need, he ran away and left his clothes behind, naked into the night. I'm not making this stuff up. This is, I mean, that's not the picture of heroes, folks. Those are the kinds of things you edit out if you want to get a heroic picture. But you turn two pages in your Bible and all of a sudden you discover they're out there preaching to the very people who had crucified Jesus. Now that's fearless. Something had happened. And there was great risk involved in that. And we need to recognize the fact that every one of the twelve, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. And John died in exile on the Isle of Patmos. But they were fearless. They were fearless. Now let me tell you something. I was talking one day to Fitz Allison about this, who's been a soldier. And I said to him, you know, Fitz, they're going to freeze my... You know, if we go into this battle with the National Church, they're going to freeze my pension. I said, I'm worried about my wife and my kids. I said, I inherited some nice things, but I didn't inherit any money. I said, what am I going to do? And he said, I said, you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous about that. And he looked at me, and this, is the, this was the turning point for me. He said, they aren't going to kill you. Great. <laughs> well, well, you know, that's... That's true. <laughs> They're not going to kill you. You know what we're worried about? We're worried about being isolated at a cocktail party. Isn't that the truth? We're afraid to start talking about Jesus because if we, you know, it's interesting. You can talk about anything. You can stand at a cocktail party and talk about Islam or Buddhism. And, and, and people think, oh, he's so bright and so erudite and well-read. That's fascinating. It's very interesting. And then all of a sudden you say, let me tell you about, uh, you know, I, I was reading in the Bible today about Jesus. Jesus. Excuse me, I filled my glass. Right. <laughs> and off they go. And you think to yourself, oh, I'm being persecuted. <laughs> That's not persecution. Yes. <laughs> And so if we are going to be effective witnesses for the one who gave everything for us, we're going to have to get more courageous. We're going to have to get fearless. And if people turn away from us, remember this. The book of Isaiah says the word of the Lord never comes back void. So we want to see the fruit of our labors, and sometimes you don't. But God is not concerned with your success. He's concerned with your faithfulness. God's not concerned with your happiness. He's concerned with your holiness. So we have got to get fearless. We've got to become a fearless people who are willing to witness. And when I say fearless, I don't mean offensive. I mean, one of the, the, the fourth hallmark here is that what Peter gave was an eminently reasonable address. We should be presenting the gospel in a winsome and attractive way. And we shouldn't be afraid. You know, did you ever see one of those people that have a, a, a license plate on their car that says, let me tell you about my grandchildren? Did you ever see one of those? Yeah. Don't ask them. <laughs> because they will. And they'll open their wallet and 40 pictures will come out. They are not afraid of you being offended. We're not afraid to talk about our grandchildren, are we? Oh, 
the Naval Academy. He <laughs> was at Harvard or wherever he is. You know, he's doing great. You know, or she married. You know, this, that, or the other thing. Or well, we could talk about those things, but we're afraid of offending anybody by talking about Jesus. Why is that? We should be able to do it, but in a winsome and attractive way. Let me tell you about what's changed my life. I mean, I hope you see that when I teach, this isn't... Now, you all just open your Bibles. We're going to look at this in a serious manner. No, this is the most wonderful message in the world. And it can be presented in a winsome, attractive way because it's a winsome and attractive message. But it is a reasonable address. I mean, Peter's taken them all through all of this, and then he gets to the end, and he says... Now, what are you going to do about it? In business, the language would be, he goes for the sale. He always goes for the sale. He was saying, here's the situation. Let me walk you through it. You know Jesus. He was a real person. Many of you saw him. He did amazing things. Many of you saw them. Some of your own Pharisees have acknowledged that. Nicodemus said, we know that you are a man come from God because no one could do the things that you were doing. You know he was crucified. You know he was killed. We're telling you he was raised again, and you can see marvelous things being done in our midst. We're speaking in languages, and you can't believe you're hearing in your own languages. We want you to understand it's that same Jesus Christ. And he is exalted, and he's sitting at the right hand of God, and he's coming back one day. Now, given that fact, and he goes for the sale, what are you going to do about it? In other words, he takes them through and walks them through and he shows them that if this is true, there's an implication to it. We have to be willing to do that too. We need to be willing to take people through and show them if this is how you want to live your life apart from God, what's the implication of that? <coughs> Keep your finger in Acts for just a minute. I know I'm five minutes over, but just, just hang in there with me for just one second. <laughs> Romans chapter 1. God always says one of two things to us. Romans chapter 1. Beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're not ignorant of the truth. He says they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse. But although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts they were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, what? God gave them up. God says one of two things to every person. He says, you can have it my way, or you can have it your own way. And so much of the misery and the suffering and the pain and the unhappiness that comes into our lives is not the work of other people. It's oftentimes the work of our own selfishness. The worst thing God can ever say to a person is, have it your own way. 
And yet that's what we want, isn't it? Isn't that what the old Burger King commercial used to say? Have it your way. It's the worst thing God can ever say. Have it your own. And so we need to say to people, look, if this is all true, there's an implication for this. Don't delay. Come to Jesus Christ. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Come to Him today. And know His saving power and His saving grace. There's an old Baptist hymn, Almost Persuaded. Almost Persuaded. Almost Persuaded. But Lost. And when Peter put it to them that way, we're told they were cut to the quick. 3,000 people repented and were saved and added to their number. Folks, if we presented the gospel like that, can you imagine what would happen in the city of Charleston? Can you imagine what would happen in St. Philip's Church? The fire marshal would have to close us down because we couldn't fit the people in. We'd have to have 20 services on Sunday. And you say, well, that'll never happen. Happened here. If Peter can preach a sermon and get 3,000 people in one day, how many people are in this room? Let us pray that the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit will fill us. Fill us in this place and use us in this way. Make us a people of the Word. We can turn this community, this culture, this world upside down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. It is your word. You speak through it. Open our ears, open our minds, fire our imaginations, fill us with a sense of fearlessness, boldness, but also a sense of humility. Help us to remember we don't do this in and of our own strength. But make us joyful and winsome people, Lord that people may see in us something that is attractive. And when they come to ask us, what is it that you have that I don't have? Grant us the grace, Lord, to tell them exactly what it is to give them what Peter gave them on Pentecost. The thousands may be added to our number. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What was the name of that man who...